everyone. This is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to an episode of Flyer Labs. And today we get to talk to one of the most about one of the most innovative companies in the world. And to do that, we're talking to Randy Villahermosa. Randy is the executive director of innovation at the Aerospace Corporation, located in El Segundo, California. The Aerospace Corporation is a nonprofit company that focuses on research and development, mainly focused around aerospace and space systems. And Randy is in charge of their internal innovation ecosystem, which is quite expansive. So their, their team works on over 100 technical areas, including space systems, satellites, nanomaterials, and laser systems. So Randy must have some pretty fun and busy days. So I asked Randy to come on the show to learn more about what they're working on, what he's excited about, and how he makes the Aerospace Corporation even more innovative. So Randy, thanks for uh, coming on the show today. Hey, Dave. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yes, definitely. And uh, excited to learn more about what you, what you have going on. And uh, But before that, maybe it'd be great if you want to give us a little bit of, on your background and curious where you grew up and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, it really started, it started in a small town um, <laughs> called Newark, New Jersey. Not actually all that small, but uh, yeah, I was born in Newark, New Jersey and first generation. Uh, my parents immigrated from the Philippines. Um, spent, you know, a good portion of my life on the East Coast and, and you know, growing up, I always, you know, believe it or not, because my degree is actually in science. I'm a chemist. Um, yeah, I got my PhD from Caltech. But, you know, as early as I can remember, I always wanted to do two things. I always wanted to be, frankly, an artist. Um, but then I was always really drawn to technical things. Um, to this day, I keep hoping that one day I will wake up and actually be able to carry a tune. Um, <laughs> what, type but, but the, what type of artist do you want to be? Uh, you know, I, I gravitate towards architecture because, you know, there's a nice mix of uh, sort of engineering and, and the things you associate with science and technology. You have some amazing, beautiful structures that architects uh, make. Um, I secretly think I should be able to pick up a guitar and just start singing at a, you know, at a bar. <laughs> my wife assures me that, that I should be spending my energies elsewhere. Uh, so she's usually right about those kind of things. That's probably wise. Although you could, you could put a little piece together for this podcast when we launch it. A little, uh, guitar, little guitar playing. <laughs> yeah. I think that would be both tragic and, uh, <laughs> and unfortunate, but, uh, appreciate the offer. <laughs> gotcha. All right. So, um, how, yeah. So where did you go to undergrad? Uh, I went to this small college called Occidental College, so uh, halfway through high school. You know, so 1989 when when uh, we moved from the East Coast. You know, at the time we were in Florida, and we moved out to California, and you know, this was pre-internet. So uh, my mom went to the one place that she knew in California, which was Disneyland, um, <laughs> and we ended up living near Disneyland. And then uh, uh, through a research program, went to Occidental College, and that was a blast. It was a small school, smaller than probably most people's high schools, um, but you know, it was a great fit for me. And we've actually had uh, quite a few famous alumni. If you're familiar with. Um, 
um, Ben Affleck. He uh, actually spent his first two years uh, of college at, at Occidental, or as, as we like to call it, Oxy. Um, and it's just in you know eastern Los Angeles. Um, there's also another gentleman that you may know. His name is uh, Barry Obama. Um, he goes now by Barack Obama, but when he... Um, so, uh, he was also an alumni. We're actually probably more famous for famous people who go to Oxy than leave because both Slack <laughs> and Barack Obama, um, left to go to other universities before they graduated. But we will, they're alumni the minute they step foot on campus. So we'll happily, uh, we'll happily take it. That's right. Just post them all over the, the website. No, um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right. So, so you went to Caltech and then you, I mean, you started at the aerospace corporation. Was it right out of? Caltech or soon after? It was. It was this crazy thing where you know I finished my PhD in uh, inorganic chemistry. We were studying um, uh, laser spectroscopy and nanoelectronics. We were convinced this was you know 2001. If I was convinced that we would, uh, like any good scientist in a pipe dream, uh, we were convinced that we would replace all uh, silicon-based electronics with ones that were organic, like DNA and, wow. and proteins. And so that's what I did my uh, graduate work on. And so you know, here I'm about to leave with uh, my doctorate. And I actually had offers to go um, work at, uh, to be a professor at some small colleges, had some offers from sort of what I call traditional chemistry companies and then there was this kind of this this sort of out of nowhere um this company called aerospace and turns out someone that i had uh, been in grad school with was at the company uh, and i just happened to run into him and he said hey you should check us out uh and the, i was immediately drawn to three things you know we um from a technical perspective this really great mix of science engineering it's uh, it's both applied and basic. You know, we're not driven by profit uh, as a nonprofit and as an FFR to see a fairly funded research and development center. We work in the in the public interest and we're focused uh, very much on space and space innovation. Uh, so really, what drives us isn't a profit motive. It's really about solving problems. It was a great mix of science and engineering, uh, and I really like the idea that you know. Um, for me, anyway, just me personally, I really liked the idea that the work we were doing was contributing to the nation and, and this sort of this, this sort of broader um, you know, ideal, if you will, of being able to support uh, national security. And the funny thing was, is I actually knew nothing about space. I mean, <laughs> like absolutely zero about space when I got here. Don't tell them that because I, I didn't lie when I got here, but I'm sure they figured I must know at least something. And you know, that was definitely not the case. You knew, you knew which uh, direction it was at least probably. So, I knew uh, which direction yeah. it was. And I did have a friend in grad school who really wanted to be an astronaut. Um, and I kept telling him, you should stop telling me that because the numbers, you know, the stats are pretty much against you. <laughs> it's just a great way to give you a hard time when we're hanging out. But, uh, so, and you know, with Caltech, we're very close really to JPL. So, uh, and right around the time, you know, you, you there was no way you didn't know or get caught up in space because it was the Mars curiosity mission, uh, had just landed. Uh, so it was a you know, really exciting time for space. And, uh, but you still really thought about it, honestly, until, until I found aerospace. And then, uh, ever since then, it's just, I can't tell you a single day, that isn't different from the last day. I mean, so I've been here 15 years now. Wow. Uh, I won't do the math, but however many days that is, like literally every single day 
uh, has been different, which has just been, and I, I don't think I'm alone. I think the vast majority of us who are here uh, think the same thing. And, uh, and can maybe give a, I actually have some questions on, you know, what, what he first started doing when he came to the Aerospace Corporation, but can, can you just give a, um, a brief overview on the Aerospace Corporation? And you mentioned a little bit, but kind of a, I mean, it's an interesting story how you guys got started back in the, it was the 1960s and how that all worked out. Um, but yeah, can you just give a, a brief overview? That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah, I would love to. So yeah, we were started in 1960. We're a California nonprofit. We're what's known as a fairly funded research and development center. So you know, go back to 1960. You know, it's the space age, and we're in the middle of the space race. And uh, you know, today the sort of the the hot technologies are data analytics and AI and the internet. And in the '60s, it was a lot of it revolved around space and space technologies. And the government was in the business, as they are today, in leveraging space for a whole host of applications, um, not only exploration with NASA, but also national security. And they quickly realized that there was a very strong need to have some kind of organization that had some key characteristics. They wanted it to be independent so that you could just look at the problems and look at the data and be able to tell the government what you know they thought was their best assessment of uh, sort of cost benefit and the risk and to help advise the government when it came to space technologies. They wanted to have the sort of the you know, the best minds who are thinking about nothing but space day in and day out to do that for a very long time to sort of keep that corporate memory, if you will, on space technology and space innovation. And they wanted that organization to work very closely hand in hand uh, with them. And so it's, you know, with those goals in mind that the, um, the aerospace, you know, believe it or not, it's called the Aerospace Corporation. There's actually a reason for that that, that I frankly probably would um, not get completely right. But there's a historical reason why we were called that. But but that's how the aerospace FFREC is, was born. Um, you know, if you fast forward a little bit to 1964, the, the, our, one of our primary sponsors, the U.S. Air Force, they, they came to Aerospace and said, hey, you know, we want to work with you on how do we do navigation from space? And today we take it for granted that, you know, anywhere in the world, you just look on your phone and it'll tell you exactly where you are. But in 1964, that was, you know, a very novel idea. Uh, and while aerospace didn't invent navigation from space, at least not the bulk of the technology, we did work with the government to essentially architect it. To how do you integrate technologies that existed at the time uh, into a system that we now know as, as the global positioning system, GPS? And the same, uh, you know, essentially architecture or design of the system that we developed in 1964 is the way it's still done today. And I think that's wow. really a, yeah, a testament to and it's not that people haven't tried to find other ways to do it. It's just you keep coming back to, you know, that solution and working with the Air Force to refine it and to eventually uh, with them implementing it. It's just such a robust solution that it's difficult to find um, a rival. And so, you know, that's just one example of what we've done. To, today, we focus on, you know, essentially all elements of space. Uh, but I, I like that example because it's a great case study for innovation at the company. We really think in terms of how do I pull the best technologies out of all kinds of different markets and bring them to bear on space. When you think about space, you have satellites, but you also have rockets. You have the launch vehicles. You have 
um, the ground system. So that's what we call the ground centers. But when you see the folks with the headsets and they're talking to the astronauts, they're in their, in their mission centers. That's, that's part of what we call the ground segment. Uh, all these elements have to work together, uh, sometimes down to nanosecond precision timing for the whole system to work. And, and that's what really, uh, I think, is, a, is really where aerospace um, you know, truly shines when it comes to uh, technology and innovation. Interesting. Do you, do you have an exa- another example, uh, like the like the GPS one that we might uh, recognize that you guys helped uh, create over the years? It's fine if you don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll pass over from nineteen sixty four. But let me take you back to around two thousand. Um, some of our scientists and engineers had this idea. You know, could you make so right now? Typical satellites are somewhere between the size of a small fridge all the way up to the size of a small school bus. Um, and that's sort of a, what we consider to be a typical size satellite. But back in 2000, uh, they said, you know, I wonder if we can build a satellite small enough to fit in the palm of your hand. Huh. And uh, from that was what was born what we call our AeroCubes or our CubeSats. And so between us and a few other um, sort of pioneers in the field, uh, we, uh, you know, we're, have been and continue to be at the forefront of advancing that technology. So the ability, you know, it started out with really basic, um, you know, small satellites that you can you literally, you know, you can hold these in your hand. They're about the size of a Kleenex box. Um, trademark. Actually, I think it's no longer trademark because Kleenex is such a... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, Kleenex. Sorry if it is uh, a, a facial promoting. tissue box. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're we're neutral, so we're, we will not. Uh, I will not. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so a facial tissue box um, size satellite, and it can do everything a large satellite can do. Now, you know, it's still limited by the fundamentals of physics. So you can only get so much aperture size when it comes to, let's say, imaging the Earth. You can only have so much power and mass. But that's the amazing thing is to trying to find what can you do uh, with this CubeSat that is, you know, essentially what we've done is um, democratize space, if you will, because now it used to be that only a very select few set of folks, companies can make satellites. Now you have universities, you have high schools. They're all making... Uh, these CubeSats, and they're launching them into space and they're doing fun experiments with them. So, in a way, it's this great generational story because your company was born out of technology and innovation. We, we truly believe that that's part of our DNA. And since we've, we've sort of transferred that to the next generation with these CubeSats uh, and, and have imprinted uh, you know, how we think about innovation uh, through that. So, anytime you see a CubeSat, you hear about... Um, um, the things going on with say with Planet Labs when they talk about their flocks. Yeah, yeah, um, there's a lineage. Yeah, there's a lineage back to some of the the, the pioneer work we did in the early 2000s, the early knots, as the I think the youth like to say. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in this uh, in this area, and uh, to this day, um, every day we wake up and go, what hasn't been done yet? You know, what what else can we do? Um, we truly want to get to, so that's, you know, that's the technology side of aerospace. There's another side of aerospace that says, and we, and we were constantly working uh, together on this is, okay, now we have this great technology. Uh, what can we do with it? How do we get the ground truth on what is the, you know, truly great utility, the, the great uh, application for CubeSats. And so we spent a lot of time doing experiments and, and really thinking about, um, how CubeSats can enable uh, all sorts of, of applications. 
Interesting. All right. Well, that's a good one. Cause yeah, you're, that'll com- completely change space in the next, uh, 10, well, even it is now, but next 10, 15 years. Um, and that, yeah, so that'd be a whole podcast right there is talking about that. But, um, so, and you kind of, uh, what led nicely into my next question is, I mean, can you give us an idea of like, you guys do a lot of stuff. So it's, a, I mean, it's overwhelming to talk all about all of it in a podcast. Right. But kind of how, how do you um, break down different areas that you kind of oversee and they're responsible for innovation just to give us an idea of kind of uh, your verticals and the focus areas. And then we can ask more targeted questions, but yeah, absolutely. So that's the amazing thing. Uh, just to give, you know, your audience a sense of what goes into uh, a space system. I, I don't think it's, it's obvious uh, we probably have, uh, if not the world, certainly the leading experts in, in something called tribology, which is the study of lubricants. We have some of the world's experts on uh, understanding uh, how microwaves travel through devices because we use these things called traveling wave tubes to be able to create um, the signals that are used by communication satellites to talk with the ground. Uh, we have data uh, analytics experts because we these satellites generate tremendous amount of data and we're always constantly trying to find ways to make the processing and the, what we call the exploitation. How do we pull information out of that data? Um, we're always looking for ways to make that more efficient. So everything from composites to materials to, you know, bearings and, and sensors, uh, we have to do all of that in order to give a complete, uh, you know, product when it comes to space. So when we think about, you know, innovation and research and development, it's very much structured around all the different, what we call technical trades, all the different technical areas that you would need uh, to be able to build a complete satellite system. And so in, in a lot of ways, those act as like our horizontals. Those are our functional areas. We have an entire half of the company belongs to what we call our engineering and technology group, and they are uh, organized around these various functions. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can go into any satellite company and you'll recognize the titles. There's electronics folks, there's mechanical folks. Uh, what we do that though, but what I like what we're doing today is we're, you know, we're modernizing how we think about R and D. So even though we don't uh, live in a traditional, uh, market where there are segments and verticals, we've created our own verticals or our own uh, equivalent of a vertical to help us be more strategic about how we do R&D. So we have a vertical that's related to the data. We have a vertical that's related to how you actually build the satellites or the launch vehicles. Uh, There's a vertical related to what we call mission assurance. This is really a discipline that aerospace uh, has led the development and and is certainly the thought leader on um, essentially how do you ensure everything's going to work? It's beyond just getting the satellite into space and into the right orbit. But then, you know, you know, typically you can't touch that satellite once it's there. So we want to make sure that the that the data it's producing, that the that the capabilities delivering will actually ultimately satisfy the end user, not just what we thought we were going to build, um, but that actually the users are saying, yeah, this is what we need. So we have these different verticals that really speak to the different elements of our customers. Some of our customers are more focused on the data; others are more focused on. Uh, what we call the acquisition process, how you actually uh, develop and and launch these satellites. Others are more focused on operations. And uh, by doing that, we're able to uh, very uh, well align and stay in lockstep with our customers because they're really ultimately our our focus for all this effort. 
And and who are some of uh, your customers, if you can mention? Yeah, I you know, I NASA, think NASA might be one. <laughs> yeah, we do. Uh, we uh, you know, NASA is definitely a, an area for us that we put a lot of attention to. We have an entire uh, group at the company focused just on supporting NASA, doing a lot of independent assessments, uh, and working through various questions that that they have. Um, but you know, the way I like to think of it is any entity within the U.S. government that is spacefaring. So that could be the Air Force. It could be. Um, if you think about uh, space traffic management, so how the government is planning to manage the uh, what is predicted to be a very sharp rise in the number of satellites in the next coming years due to new space, any anything in the U.S. government that has a reason to uh, interact, use, or manage space, uh, we more than likely have some uh, level of uh, support or engagement with them. So, and, and what the, what or who drives your, kind of your research focus? So, like, is it the customers coming to you yeah. saying, "Hey, we have this idea or this problem," or is it you guys internally saying, "Hey, we need to figure out"? And I would like to see if you're actually working on this, but internet satellite or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Who, uh, yeah. who kind of drives those uh, um, projects? Yeah, so we have this. Uh, we like to break it up into three bins. Uh, if you're familiar with McKinsey's three horizon model, we like to think in terms of essentially three horizons. Um, more often than not, we actually will work uh, directly with our customers on a daily basis. So they'll literally be in the office next door to us. So we're able to have uh, routine conversations about what the current need is. And so we focus a, a significant portion of our portfolio on. Problems that arise today or we know are coming tomorrow that either we identify and discuss with our customers or our customers identify and say, you know, we, we'd like to see some some solutions or some options. And that's a big thing for us. You know, we're as a nonprofit and as an FFRUC, we do focus on solutions, but oftentimes it's about creating options for those solutions. So what are the different ways you could solve this problem? Can you create a prototype of one so we can see how to actually work? Because, um, uh, you know, we don't compete with the private sector. So it's really about enabling new technologies more so than package solutions or package products. Um, we have a second bin that says we're going to look at emerging technologies. And we're going to do this on our own, but we're also going to do it with our, our customers, with the government. And uh, between the two of us, identify areas where we think that an emerging technology will have a role in space in the future. And there's some there's some obvious ones that I, I can point out today. Data analytics is one. Uh, again, this idea of how do we automate uh, the processing of satellite data. Uh, cloud, that could potentially play a big role in how we operate satellites through, again, that ground segment where you're not only controlling the satellite, but you're managing the data flow. Added manufacturing is another. So we're starting to see more and more uh, components being printed rather than traditionally um, produced. And so what we do is we've developed a process and, and we're in the process of revamping that process that we come up with these ideas and, and work it with our customers to say, you know, are these the types of problems that, uh, you know, you're, you're focused on and, and can we help come up with a, a solution? Um, yeah. Well, oh, go ahead. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> oh, Ah, oh, sorry. Well, let me let me do this. The, the very last, the yeah. third category, which is why we started what we call our iLab initiative or our innovation laboratory initiative. Um, so, 
there we that that sort of third bucket or we call the third horizon this is where we're looking for those transformative ideas this is where we're looking for the next big idea in space you know this is where aerospace says we have the capabilities we have the expertise we have the great relationships with our customers uh, and with the industry uh, we can play a role in leading this idea of how do we come up with that next big thing in space? And so part of the iLab initiative is exploring some uh, sort of what I'll call advanced concepts, things like satellites that can essentially build themselves in space um, is, is one of the things we're working on. Um, ways of using AI and artificial intelligence that augments humans and provides just a um, not only a more efficient um, sort of product, but also one that has uh, more depth, but still recognizes the important role that humans play in decision-making. Uh, so that kind of gives you the landscape of how we, how we think about these things. And, and there's a lot of, clo- we're fortunate to have a lot of close coordination with our customers as we do this. Interesting. Yeah. I'm curious about the augment in humans. What do you, can you share an example or something that you're, you guys are thinking about or working on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, we've been, there's this sort of um, debate happening, uh, and it's not, I think, very public right now, but I suspect that it'll become more and more in the forefront of people's thinking. We're starting to see the early signs of it, which is the difference between artificial intelligence and augmented intelligence. So I think if you live in the AI um, end of the spectrum, you have computers and algorithms replacing people. Uh, if you're in the augmented uh, intelligence side of the spectrum, you see technologies algorithms, computers, working hand-in-hand symbiotically with humans. So I'll give you an example that that we've been thinking about um, where, let's say um, you are a a new junkie and you love to scan 20 different websites and you may flip through, uh, you know, on your apps, 100 articles a day, but only read about three of them. Now, imagine you were able to train your own AI based on what you know and what you like. And every day when you wake up, it says, hey, there's 100 articles that you're going to look at today, but I would start with these first three. That'd be awesome. And there's a subtlety there because, yeah, because it's not, you know, you say, well, well, websites do that now. They just serve you, you know, whatever you think you want uh, based on your analytics. And that's true. But there's a subtlety here in that. When it becomes augmented, it's when it says, hey, I'm not going to tell you what to read. I'm not going to guess. I'm just going to try and predict which ones you'd want to look at first. Uh, And with your limited time in your day, I think these are the ones you'd want to see first. So it gives the human the freedom to go look at all 100, uh, but also to say, hey, uh, I've trained my twin pretty well. and uh, I'm pretty sure the first three are going to be good, and that's that's where I'm going to start. So it's the idea of uh, making... um, us as humans more efficient and more effective using algorithms as opposed to the, the more traditional AI of replacing human functions with uh, with machines. Gotcha. And and relating that to space, I mean, would it be like an astronaut? Like maybe there's a bunch of things they have to look at or take care of, and you're highlighting the most valuable. Or is it not? Is sometimes your research not always directly related to space or? How do you, uh... I, you know, it's funny. I get that question all the time, and it's a great one. Yeah, you know, a lot of the stuff we're doing today is not um, overtly related to space. Okay. Uh, and, I, and partly because there's, there's just, frankly, there's quite a lot of people, really talented people who are doing that part. What we look for 
are essentially the themes. Where is there a technology that isn't really being used for space today? But if we did a little bit of work, it could potentially change, uh, you know, technology for space in the future. So the example of, of this, uh, you know, augmented uh, intelligence. Uh, so as an example, yeah, it's a great one. If you're an astronaut and there may be some advanced algorithms, some advanced uh, analytics that's reviewing all the telemetry on, let's say you're on a space station and the AI is constantly reviewing the telemetry and giving you the sort of one to end. Here are the top three things you should look at today because these things look a little bit odd to us and you may want to go check it out. Uh, and again, it's a very subtle difference, but I think it's also a powerful one. It's not the you know computer saying this is broken, go fix it, but then it's too late. Makes it's sense. saying, hey, I think you know there's something here. You may want to look at it. Uh, another place we think it's going to get used a lot is in um, analyzing satellite data. So satellites today, sensors today, the uh, if you look at the power of silicon and the sensors and the data and the com we can generate way more sensor data than any human can reasonably process efficiently. So I think there's an opportunity here where uh, you take all the experience and all of the intuitiveness that comes with being a human and you essentially uh, magnify that with the augmented intelligence. And so you can imagine that it would give someone the ability to uh, very quickly process a lot of satellite data and get to what's important. Gotcha. Okay. And is there... Uh, any other project that uh, you're especially interested in or you, you make sure you attend more meetings in this area because you just have a, you're curious about it or um, you already mentioned a couple. So if you don't have another one, that's fine. But at least wanted to ask. Yeah, there's there's uh, there's one in particular right now that's um, that has me uh, super excited uh, because I'm a big fan of. Um, projects that, you know, if I say, Hey, I, I think we should do this project and I have a reason. And then every time I show it to someone, they come up with a different reason to do the project. Next thing you know, there's one project, there's like 20 people or 20 groups, each having a different reason why they want to do it. And it just, it yeah. just, you just see this, you know, exponential growth in the uh, innovation. So we have this project called Hive and the basic idea behind Hive is that satellites can uh, self-assemble in space. So uh, there's lots of interesting things you can do there. You can think about like robotic missions that way. You can think about satellites that can reconfigure themselves into different um, different applications. And just the underlying technology to make that happen cuts across everything we do here, software, mechanisms, materials, the CubeSats, because we want to use CubeSats as a, essentially as a playground to prototype and experiment with this idea. Um, it's just a great way to, to build these amazing teams. And, you know, here's the thing, here's the amazing thing about aerospace. If I need to talk to a materials expert, I just pick up the phone. Well, I don't pick up the phone anymore. I just shoot off an email, uh, and say, you know, uh, Hey, uh, Aaron, can I talk to you for five minutes about this idea? Uh, or, you know, Hey, this Thursday, we're going to get you together with, uh, our digital electronics expert and our AI expert. And, and we're going to brainstorm on this idea. And we do, it's, it's like this amazing thing that, any expert you could ever want, um, short of anything having to do biology, uh, we can we can pretty much touch any technical area and have uh, you know a team be able to, to jump on it and, and think of new ideas. So it's just it's just a amazing uh, you know environment to be in from an innovation standpoint. And with the self assembly satellites, so you mentioned uh, what would be 
um, the I guess the purpose. I know you kind of mentioned it, but you know why? What are all the different kind of use cases? I guess around. I mean, it sounds amazing from the sci-fi standpoint, but just curious. <laughs> <laughs> curious to the use cases. Yeah, you know, I think one uh, sort of one uh, what I'll call easy example might be if you wanted to, let's say, have a space, a new type of space station that would expand itself over time. Mm. Uh, and as more people came on board, it would automatically reconfigure to generate more space. Um, yeah, that's that's one example we're looking at. Um, you know, again, a lot of satellites are really driven by physics. So depending on if you're taking a picture or you want to do communications, the size of your antenna, the size of your optics matter. And so you can imagine if you could reconfigure your satellite, you could do different types of missions, uh, wh- whether it's taking pictures or, or transmitting uh, data. But, you know, here's the best thing about what I, what I really get excited about about Hive is that I know today that when I talk to anyone about it, they'll come up with at least one application, and it's usually one I haven't thought of. So uh, it'll just be really fun to see how this plays out over time, which applications really uh, ultimately take off. But just knowing that there's just this rich, fertile ground to to sort of uh, you know play in uh, gets gets us really excited, uh, and you know for it really just. Because we're able to take advantage of all the capabilities and expertise we have here, we can actually take these sort of somewhat crazy ideas. I mean, that's how I know when we have a great idea in that sort of you know third category of these these sort of next big ideas in space. When someone says, "I don't get it, but I want to hear more," then I know that we're onto something, and uh, we that's what really gets us excited uh, when we hit those. And we've been fortunate enough to have. You know, at least one of those in months for the last few months, and, and it's just gotten folks, uh, you know, really excited here. And how do those crazy ideas become like actual funded projects? Like, what's the, and maybe it's not a direct path, but like with, with the hive, how did that yeah. go from idea to actually something? <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I was a kid, I remember hearing about what a Renaissance man was, and that you know they could do every, they did all kinds of things: arts, engineering, science, and, and it really you, you connect that with the idea of Edison, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he came up with the idea for a light bulb. And you think about HP and how they had this garage, and next thing you know, they're this you know this amazing computer and technology company. There's just a lot of romanticism and innovation that that I just think is frankly not very helpful or realistic. <laughs> Uh, you know, we sort of get stuck on this idea of the lone inventor who had a light bulb moment. And in fact, there's a lot of trial and error and there's a lot of uh, needing to rely, especially today, more so than ever, rely on experts, technologies that aren't in your domain. Uh, every day we're seeing more and more closer integration between the tech side and the business side just to get an idea out the door, let alone trying to, you know, go after commercialization. So part of our innovation initiative under iLab is we've created an entire process within our ecosystem for how you go from literally an idea that starts out on a napkin uh, all the way through something that we can deliver to a customer. And uh, we have these things called hack sessions where you have an idea, we bring in a couple experts, we bring in a couple uh, users, we bring in some folks from industry, and we all get together and we have a process for brainstorming. And so far, every time we hold a hack session, we walk out with at least one new idea. Uh, we take that idea and then we've developed our own internal incubator process 
that allows us to uh, much more quickly than we would have traditionally go from that napkin idea all the way through to, let's say, a lab prototype. Uh, and then we bring in, again, more field testing, more user testing and say, hey, you know, how does this look? What do you think? So it's very iterative. It's very incremental. Uh, it's this whole, you know, we're sort of taking a page out of the Internet and entrepreneurial world to say, you know, we don't wait for version one. We release the beta version. We're sort of perpetual betas um, to get that great customer feedback to be able to own the technology. So just having, uh, you know, someone, I was describing this process once to someone and they said, you know, they looked at it and said, you know, the trick here is, is you got to find a way to always strike the right balance uh, between being bureaucratic and being enabling and uh, overly bureaucratic to the point where you kill innovation, but just enough that you're accelerating and enabling folks. Because uh, we, under the iLab initiative, it's the whole company. We want the whole company to be the innovators and involved in these projects. So we're constantly balancing on the head of a pin, you know, all these forces that at any point can drive you towards, uh, you know, towards a friction point rather than, uh, you know, an accelerator to to these great ideas. So. What we started um, that we're really excited about, you know, again, uh, there's two. So I'll give you two examples. Um, we were talking one day and I said, you know, I would really, I really wish I knew how to work with, you know, Raspberry Pis, and Arduinos. It's not that I don't know how to code and it's not that I can't hook up a battery to a circuit board. Uh, it's just, I just don't have the time. You know, there's like, there's probably some tricks and there's probably some things you need to know to get going. So I said, hey, what if what if there was a way that you could really easily learn how uh, this new technology works over a lunch break? You know, most of us at least once in a week will take a lunch break. Um, what if there was a kit I could give you uh, that had all the components and maybe there was a video and maybe there's some samples and in an hour you'll go from not knowing anything to doing your first project. Um, and we said, okay, let's give it a try. So we called it, uh, we call it a lunchbox and it literally is a metal lunchbox. You open it up and inside is a, a kit we put together with parts that you can buy uh, online. So there's nothing, you know, special about it from a, you know, from a technology standpoint, we just literally pick some components that we know will work. Uh, and it's based on Arduino. So you can do a bunch of experiments and we, and we show people. So we've kicked that off in March. We, our first release, our beta version of that went live in May. Um, we just had the eclipse. Someone took, someone took their lunchbox kit and used it to create a custom rig that would cause, uh, that would drive a camera to track the sun so that this, you know, lunchbox driven automated camera would take a picture of the eclipse every few seconds so that they could enjoy watching it themselves instead of having to mess with the camera. No way. And it was just, wow. yeah, it was just, <laughs> and he showed us a picture of this little, you know, it's like right out of a movie. It was like this little card. I'm like, I know that card. That's the card we put inside of a lunchbox. And he <laughs> built around it this entire automated camera rig to take a picture of the sun. I was like, oh, that's really cool. But why'd you do it? He's like, because I wanted to look at the eclipse. I didn't want to take pictures. I wanted to enjoy the pictures afterwards. So that's a great example where, you know, I think a traditional approach, we probably would have spent months designing it and, you know, more months, you know, sort of arm hand wringing about what it should look like. So we said, let's just get it out there and see what happens. And we ended up crowdsourcing that. So we had, we asked anyone who would volunteer to work on it, to work on it. And we got a bunch of people who were just, you know, they're just fans of the technology and uh, 
they did that. I'll give you one other example. Uh, we call it our sabbatical program. So if you know from from academics, you can take a year off or six months off, and it's a way to kind of reset. Um, and you typically will go to someone else's lab or you'll study a different field, just trying to, you know, uh, put some new energy or some new life back into your research. turns out um, uh, when I was uh, friends with someone who was working at a visual effects company, they did the same thing. Uh, visual effects artists work very long hours when they're in production for very long periods of time. So whenever they're done with a movie, they're allowed to take somewhere between a month to three months off. And they still work, they still come to the office, and they still get paid, but they're allowed to work on a side project. And it's a way for them to reset, and it's a way for them to generate new ideas. Uh, that was a big thing, I think, at Disney when, uh, if you read the biography, the story on Pixar, that one of the things that Pixar did when they uh, came to Disney Animation is they really put a big emphasis on these side projects. So with our sabbatical program, we say, you know, our folks are really busy, super busy all the time. They just don't, can't find the time to just think about an idea, let alone explore it. So we said, what if you got uh, a week off? What if the company paid you a week uh, to do nothing but think about that idea and to try to you know advance it to the next level? So you'll get paid, so it's like a paid vacation, uh, but you'll spend it in our innovation center. We, we transformed our traditional library into an innovation center. And so you would come and you would spend the week and you would take your idea and you would maybe write a pro create a prototype. If you were creating some software code, maybe you create a prototype of that. Maybe you do a CAD model if it was something more mechanical. So we, we put this out and we thought maybe we'll get one or two people who are interested. We started in March and it's been amazing because uh, since March, we've had one every single week. And uh, right now we think of the ones that have gone through the sabbatical program, at least half of them have led to new ideas that, that we think is going to be new IP. Wow. Um, you know, it's obviously some new problems. Yeah. 40 hours. Yeah. One week. <laughs> Yeah, you, know, you think about I sp I waste more time on the freeway, <laughs> in a, you know, in a year than I ever would in a sabbatical, and it, it was just amazing. And, and the, um, the the sort of the energy boost we gave to our staff just from doing this um, it, that itself was worth it. But then the fact that we're actually getting new ideas out of it, it was also amazing. So again, if we had thought it through, which we kind of did, but not as much as we usually would. Uh, it would have probably taken us a year to get this off the ground. But we just said, no, let's just give it a try. Let's just see what happens. And, uh, you know, amazing things happen when you do that. That sounds like a fun week. Um, so, oh, wait, one more question on that area is that with a project with, uh, like the Hive, how do you know, because you must be evaluating these projects all the time, how do you know when to shut it down? I mean, is it the customer that says, oh, you know, we want to go a different direction. This isn't fast enough. It's going to cost too much money. Um, or is it you guys saying technically this isn't going to be possible or maybe a combination of everything, but how do you know? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's very rare that our customer will get to that level where they say, you know, we think that that, that particular technology or that project you're exploring isn't, isn't useful. We, we usually intervene much earlier than that point. We, we kind of almost view it as a failure if they have to step in at that point because we're constantly, you know, interacting with them and making adjustments based on their feedback and, and where the technology is heading us. But, you know, I think anyone who runs a portfolio, R&D or innovation, they're going to run into, you know, what, what's sort of known as these zombie projects. Uh, it's almost impossible not to have them. That's, you know, these are projects that started out with great intentions. They're still producing great products. So technically speaking, it's a great result. So it's not, 
uh, a waste of, of investment, but it may not ultimately get to what you were trying to solve in the first place. You know, just went down uh, a detour or your initial idea wasn't quite uh, what you had hoped it would be, but you're still producing great product. And you look at it and you go, yeah, you know, if we keep funding that, you will continue to produce useful product and, and, and we'll get value out of it. There's probably, if we took that same money and put it in some other places, it probably would do even more. Uh, and that's sort of the basic idea behind a zombie uh, project, kind of, you know, the, the walking dead. Um, <laughs> this is really bad, right? I mean, it's like super pejorative. So we don't, I, we don't use that term, but it's sort of a, you know, I'll call it generic term out there in the tech sector. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, this is what I tell people. Um, this is hard. You know, we view, I view projects, uh, like people, um, you know, you get, you get very attached to your project. You get very attached to your ideas. You get, uh, you get uh, very protective of them. You really want to see them succeed. Uh, you want to do everything you can to care and feed for them. So whenever we have to go in, cause we, do, we are a big proponent of at some point projects must end for one reason or another, uh, and we try to view it as, you know, how would, you know, how would I break up with a friend? Um, you know, it's it just, it's just, you, sometimes these, you know, these, these just come to that time and, um, you know, it's a lot of just sort of just taking the fact that there's a person involved and saying, Hey, you know, we just can't continue funding this effort. There are other places that uh, are needed, those resources, and we're all part of one team and we still think you have a great idea. Uh, it's just not a great fit for us right now or, you know, for whatever various reasons that we'll stop the project. And, you know, no one's ever happy, but I think if someone can walk away from that conversation and saying, at least I understand, uh, but more importantly, knowing that there's a window to then come up with the next idea and that we're willing to and able to uh, fund and explore that, uh, that, that definitely helps. But I do think it's important. That's the reason why we like to take an ecosystem approach to things it's part of sort of the natural cycle of things that you need to have rejuvenation and you need to be able to move on from certain things. Um, it's a trap too, right? Cause if you think about it, if you think about the life cycle of any company, um, you know, typically a tech company will start up by solving a problem. So they're very problem focused in the beginning. Then they come up with a technology solution and that technology now becomes the focus of the company. Uh, and you sort of lose the magic when you were focused more on the problems and you tend to then calcify and get very sort of rigid and build all these infrastructures and systems around that technology rather than back to the original problem or the ability to solve problems as opposed to, you know, focusing on the technology piece. So that's a real challenge today, right? So if you look at the evolution of say lasers, lasers were invented in the sixties, you know, I don't think they really became commonplace. I remember in 2000, uh, went down to the laser lab at Caltech and there was a laser on a table the size of a pool table and it was very large. And, uh, the next day someone showed me a laser the size of a pen that did the exact same thing. And like, where did that come from? Um, Yeah. So, you know, now technologies are going from, you know, large bench tops to handheld devices in a matter of months. So we have to figure out how to kind of get everybody back to this idea of being problem focused, not technology focused. And that technology is just a tool now rather than, you know, the domain of those who uh, were engineers and scientists, you know, a couple of decades ago. Uh, Yeah. No, you're right. Companies tend to 
And I've been a part of that where you can get lost a little bit and trying to figure out how your solution can apply to many different areas, which can actually goes to my next question is, I mean, you guys build some pretty amazing tech, which probably has a lot of application, you know, on earth, <laughs> um, or I'd say or at least in other industries, let's say, um, do you guys have anybody who's kind of looking out for you know, other opportunities in other industries or do you license your tech to companies or how does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually have an, uh, we have uh, three ways we do that. We have a group that's dedicated to commercialization. I think much the way like an academic institution would work, okay. you know, most of our R and D is funded by the government. So we do feel, uh, you know, an important need to get that technology out to the public as, quickly and as efficiently as possible. And sometimes, believe it or not, licensing is the best way to do that. So we have a whole group that looks at uh, commercialization of our technology. Um, we have another group that focuses on not what I'll call the um, sort of the federal government civilian sector. Uh, that's So we do space, but a lot of the space we do is for national security. So it's a natural extension for us to focus on government agencies that are also focused on national security, but maybe not have as strong a footprint in space. So one example might be like the Homeland Security folks. So we have an entire group that's focused on how do we take our capabilities here at aerospace and adapt them to the federal government. Um, and then within my office, within the iLab office, we have uh, we created an entirely new business function that we call innovation development. This is where you take all these skills that you uh, you use for business development, which is usually driven by revenue, and you remove the revenue from the equation and you replace it with innovation. So we have folks who are very technically oriented, but are, have a background in business development. They're able to go form relationships, understand the market, the customers. And we feel that today with the way technology is headed, if you can come up with a solution, a technology that has not only a commercial application, but a government one, it's going to be a win-win for, for both sides. Because if you look at example, cloud is the example I like to use. Um, you know, Today, you can take advantage of the commercial cloud services, and more than likely, they're going to be as good or better than what you can build yourself. Uh, and so... You know, 30 years ago, if you wanted to do something, more than likely you would have to invent the technology yourself if it was new. And 99% of your energy in the R&D world was spent on creating those new technologies. Today, I think it's more about what we call the make-buy. You know, trying to decide where does it make sense to use the technology that exists today versus having to create new from whole cloth. And that gets us right back to 1964 because in a lot of ways, the design of GPS, in my mind, was a make-buy decision. There's all these available technologies. How do I best use those? Where are the areas where I need to insert some new technology that doesn't exist? That's the make part. Uh, and then I can leverage what's available under the under the buy uh, piece of that equation. So all that plays together. And, um, you know, one of the things that we get asked often is when someone sees one of our, one of our uh, technologies or, or ideas, they say, well, how do I get that? How do I get to that? Um, and sometimes it's directly through the government, but other times it may make more sense to um, work with a commercial partner and be able to provide it more readily uh, to a broader set of users. Interesting. Okay. And do you list your technologies on your, your site? Like they're available for licensing? Like yeah, there's. Um, if you go to our website, um, www.aero.org um, or aerospace.org, you will see um, quite a bit of different technologies under what we call our 
Um, civil systems groups do every, you'll see everything from drones and counter UAV uh, to things that we do for more traditional space. And uh, we're always trying to find new ways to expose the technologies we do to the, to the public. Uh, and so I suspect in the coming year, we'll be looking at uh, even more avenues to be able uh, to do that different you know, media channels and things like that. Excellent. Okay. All right. So we're out of time. We're actually probably over time, but uh, hopefully that's okay. And uh, I have one more uh, personal question. I always like to ask, you know, what do you like to do outside of work? Oh, great question. I would say two things. One, I like to just sit in a room and stare. Uh, and <laughs> Perfect. <anything>. Perfect. <laughs> um, and then the, mostly the other time, I have two small kids. My daughter's four, and, and my son is uh, two and a half. It's such a cop-out whenever parents say, oh, I just like to hang out with my kids. <laughs> uh, but if you knew my daughter, you would know why I said that, because I love her. She's fantastic, oh. but she's like a carbon copy of me, just a smaller she's, version. She's amazing. So she's super yeah, amazing. so I just look at her and, and go, wow. <laughs> I said, hey, Emmy, that was just amazing. I'm pretty sure it's because of me that you did that, but That's you right. can take the credit for now. And so I just spent all day just following her around and telling her all the amazing stuff she does. And then she likes to tell me all the things that I've done wrong, and uh, um, uh, which is, you know, part for the course. So there you go. Well, that's great. No, I understand that. I like that. Um, all right. Well, this has been great. I have like, 30 more questions, but I think we should probably stop it now for everyone's time. And, uh, we really appreciate hearing about your background and what you guys are doing there. And, uh, I mean, you guys are kind of a, a hidden gem in the research world, at least, you know, from the public view, of course, people in the industry know you guys very well, but so it's fun to yeah. hear more about what you're doing. So Randy, really appreciate you uh, coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I do want to do a quick shout out to the Midwest. Uh, my wife is actually from Indiana. Her family uh, dates back to, I think, like the 13th president uh, with their farm in southern Indiana. And when I mentioned uh, coming from the East Coast and the West Coast that uh, she lived in a flyover state, she she did two things. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. And then, and then she hit me. So uh, everyone in the Midwest, I think you guys are awesome. Uh, and uh, thanks for being there. Yeah, that's great. All right. I like the shout out. And uh, thank and thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Flyer Labs. As always, I definitely appreciate it. And thanks again, Randy. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks everyone. Bye. <laughs>